Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, we're going to be picking up in our verse-by-verse study of the book, and we're going to cover this morning 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. As you're turning there, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but the phrase, knowledge is power, is, I think, very true. Knowledge is power. It was originally made famous by Sir Francis Bacon in his book, Sacred Meditations and Human Philosophy. And he said that, knowledge is power, and then, he, and then he explained that statement by saying this. He said, there is no comparison between a king and a scholar. The king is celebrated only in his country, whereas a scholar is celebrated everywhere. Uh, what, what Francis Bacon was saying is actually very interesting. Knowledge produces power. When you know something with certainty, it changes the way you look at, think about, and act towards something. Uh, Knowledge changes the way that you interact with the world around you. And the same is true with the Christian life. The same is true with the Christian life. Things we know about God, when they are believed, change the way that we live. They produce power in us. They change us. And John's point in this section, starting in verse 9, is... Uh, is to help us as Christians truly know the power of the love of God for us and then the power of the love of God in us. What does it do in us? Both for us and in us. And so we're going to be covering verses 9 through 11. And this brings us to point one this morning. How does it fit? How does it fit? And the first thing we need to do is go back again to John's argument. What is John's argument in the book? What's he working toward? If you remember, there's two sides to the book of 1 John. The first half of the book of 1 John is that God is light. John argues for us that God is light, and that light is his life and his moral purity. It is his glory shining out into the world through the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. God is light. And then he tells us that God is righteous. And he tells us that those of us who know God have been rebirthed in the image of God so that we also fellowship with God in his glory and we reflect his righteousness. And then you say, well, how do I reflect his righteousness? And this answer comes in this section of the book where he talks about how God is love. Righteousness is love. Remember, Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All righteousness hangs on a love for God and a love for others. And that brought us to this new section in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Look in verse 7 with me. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. In other words, let us be righteous. Let us look like God. Let us care for one another by loving each other. And he says, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. They have received that new birth that then creates that righteousness of love. And he says, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. That famous statement that God is love. Now, John could have just continued on with that command. And he's going to do that. He's going to tell us to love one another in various ways. But he pauses in verses 9 through 11, and what he does here is, in a sense, support the claim that God is love. He wants to support that claim and to show the power of the knowledge of the love of God in the heart of the believer. What power does God's love produce in us? And what power is there in the love of God? And so, we're going to take three weeks and cover verses 9 through 11. It may be four weeks. 
Not sure yet. But we're going to take some weeks and cover verses 9 through 11. I told you last week, these are my funeral verses. If I have a heart attack and die on stage, just know these verses should be read at my funeral, okay? Uh, They are my favorite verses in, really, probably in the whole Bible, and because they show us how. This is the most important thing in the Christian life. We can say what, but we don't know how. What we should be and what we should do and what we should say. How do do I get my heart to do those things that I know I should do? And John answers that question for us in these verses. So in verse 9, we're going to see the powerful love of God displayed, the display of the power of God's love. And then in verse 10, we're going to see the powerful love of God understood, how we understand the love of God and what it does in us. And then in verse 11, we're going to see the powerful love of God at work. So we're going to see all three of those things in the coming weeks. So look at me at verse 9 here. John says this, he says, by this... The love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, it should be fairly obvious what he's doing here. He's tying God's love to the incarnation and death of Christ. It's obvious. But why does he do this? And this is point two, powerful love on display. Powerful love on display. And when you read verse 9, there's one word that should stick out to you. What word sticks out when you read verse 9? It's the word manifested. That's the word that should stick out to you. John says, by this, and anytime he says by this, he's pointing forward, right? By this, the love of God was manifested. John's language here in this verse, he's going to give us three ways that God's love is displayed. Now, Once in a while, uh, our family drives through Las Vegas, and on the way into Las Vegas, very sketchy, on the way into Las Vegas, there are billboards, right? Big billboards, big lit billboards, giant billboards, right? And they are displaying what you can do in Las Vegas. What John is doing here is he's putting on display for us. He's putting up billboards, three big billboards displaying The love of God for you. It's a display. He wants you to see it. He wants you to see that it has been manifested to you. That God loves you. That truth is manifested to you. You see it because he's put it on display. So we're going to look at all three of these giant billboards of the love of God for us. The first one is in point A, the incarnation. The incarnation. The first billboard that John points to that shows or displays the love of God is that he sent his son into the world. Look at verse 9. It says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Now why does John point to that as the manifestation of God's love? Because the profound reality of the gift of his son is the way that he shows that he loves you. Just think about how glorious it is that Jesus came into the world. He's the creator of the world, and he entered his creation. Think of the humility of Christ in that. But John's perspective here isn't Christ's humility. He's not arguing for the love of Christ for us. He's already done that, in fact. Look back at chapter 3, verse 16. 
He, he has already told us that Jesus loves us, but his emphasis here is on the love of the Father for us. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. In other words, the way we know love is through the love of Christ for us. He acted. But here he's addressing the love of the Father in sending his Son into the world. That he would willingly send his Son into the world is the manifestation, the, the display, the billboard of the fact that he loves us. And this should obviously, I think, bring to mind John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. That's literally what John is saying here. In fact, 1 John 4.9 is a parallel text to John 3.16. What does it tell us? It explains just how deeply God the Father loves us, doesn't it? We're his children. He does the most unthinkably kind thing in the history of the world. He sends his son to redeem us. In some ways, when you write a sermon like this, it's like coming up to Mount Everest. <laughs> you, you can't explain the whole thing. You just can't. But that's what God has done to display his love for us. And if you look at the verse again, it says, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son. That word for sent is actually not the normal Greek word for sent. It's the word where we get the word apostle, sent ones. The idea is that Jesus was sent, but not just sent. He was sent with a plan, with a commission, with a purpose. That's the concept. Not only did Jesus come into the world, not only did God send him into the world, but he sent him with the express plan to die for your sins. John says that this shows the love of the Father. This is the first billboard that reveals the love of the Father for you. The second one is in point B, only begotten. Only begotten. The New American Standard translates this. It says that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Now that language here is used by John to accentuate the love of God for us. And why do I have a question mark after only begotten? <laughs> it's not a typo. Uh, this word has caused some strain with translators. I'll tell you why. The word in Greek, we don't often do this, but the word in Greek is monogenes, okay? Monogenes. Two words, mono meaning one and genes meaning source or generation. Now, early translators, especially of like the King James Version, when they translated that word into English, they thought, well, only and generated one, the only generated one, the only begotten, right? We don't use the word begotten often, right? I begotten in a car accident. <laughs> we don't often use that word, right? That's not a common modern English word. It comes from the Old English word beget. And the Old English word beget means to get something with effort or, of course, to give birth, right? Now, that's not a helpful translation here. Why? The point isn't that Jesus was born of God in some sense, that God is his father in the sense that he gave birth to Christ. That's not helpful. The words are only generated one, the only one who comes from him, the only one who is of him. It should be translated one and only, or his only unique son. That's what that should be translated as. 
And in fact, every other time in the New Testament when that word monogenes gets used, it's always used of a one and only child. You remember the story of the widow at Nain? Remember that story? The book of Luke, it describes how this widow, she has a son and the son dies and she's weeping and Christ sees the funeral procession and raises her son from the dead. And the text says she, he was her one and only son, her unique son. She only had one. She only had one person who could help her. That's what Luke is communicating there. So this is the meaning here as well. What John is saying is that by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only unique son into the world. That's what he's saying. And in fact, the language is very emphatic in the Greek. Literally, this is what it says. God has sent the son of him, the only one, into the world. That's what he's saying. He's emphasizing this. Why? Because he wants you to understand, to see the billboard of God's love for you. God sent the son of him, the only one. Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is God, very God. And he wants us to understand the profundity of the fact that God sent him into the world. It highlights God's love for us in the most profound way. Think of this, just for a moment. Eternity past, right? There's no time before time exists. God the Father and God the Son are fellowshipping together in perfect harmony and love with the Spirit, and they love each other. They fellowship together, enjoying each other's presence in the fullness of perfection. Nothing breaks that fellowship because Jesus is God's unique Son. And together with the Spirit, they enjoy this satisfying inner Trinitarian love. They need nothing. They're satisfied, perfectly satisfied. And then what does God choose to do? He chooses to incarnate his son into the world. He chooses to send him. Jesus comes into the world and his participation and fellowship with the Father is marred not by his sins or failings, but by yours. The sins of God's people are put on Christ. Jesus suffers, and the unique son dies. That's crazy. And God orchestrates it. He puts it all into place. Why? Because he wants to show you the blinding glory of the fact that he loves you. He wants to show you that. The unconditional love that would cause God to send his son, his only unique son, into the world for you. He did it for you. To show you how much he loves you. To put it on display. So we have God's act of sending and the uniqueness of who Christ is as the sent one. There's one more manifestation, one more display, and this is point C, the purpose. It is eternal life. Look at verse 9 again. Look what he says. He says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent 
his son, his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. Again, John states the purpose of God in sending his son. God's heart, why? What moved him? God's heart was to give life to you. Why do you need life? (laughs) Why do you need life? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. And what we rightfully deserve, what you rightfully deserve for your sinful heart, your sinful thoughts, your sinful motives, your sinful words, your sinful actions, my sinful actions, what we rightfully deserve is death. Not just to physically die, but to eternally die. To suffer in hell forever for our sins. That's what you deserve. And if God were fair, he would punish you forever in hell. But instead of punishing you, he does the unthinkable. Jesus had life. He had it. He's the only person who ever earned heaven. He earned eternal life. And instead of giving him that life, he took his life and he gave it to you. And he took your eternal death and he placed it on Christ. And he united us with Jesus so that our death becomes his and his life becomes ours. That's insane. We can't put words to that. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. Your death, gone. Christ's life, yours, eternally, forever. John read it for us this morning, but look at Romans chapter 6 with me. Look what he says. Romans chapter 6 is the text on our union with Christ. And he's using it in the context of your sanctification, which is where we're going in verse 11, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, oh, if I get all the grace I want, then, hey, I should just keep sinning. And he says, what? No. May it never be. How How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? And then he describes, what does it mean that you've died to sin? Look at verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, that is, united with him, immersed into Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Your old self was with Christ at the cross. All of your sins were there. Isn't that profound? All of your sins, the sins you'll commit tomorrow. Your moments of anger and anxiety and fear and bitterness and your evil words and your evil actions were all off of you and on Christ 2,000 years ago. They were there. Your old self was with him. And he says, verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Whose life? Christ's life is ours. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. United with the life of Christ. Because you know him. Because you've been born again. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 3 in the high priestly prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now think about this. This is the final billboard. Three billboards. This is the final billboard of God's love. Not only did he send his son, and not only was it his unique, glorious son, but he did it so that you would live. That's John's point. God is love. And how do you know that God is love? How do you know that God is love? Jesus. That's how you know God is love. God sent Jesus Christ into the world, his unique son, in order that you would have eternal life rather than perish in your sins. That's why John 3.16 is so profound. That's literally the rephrasing of John 3.16. And the discussion of whether or not God loves you is settled, isn't it? If you want to understand just how powerfully God loves you, look at Jesus. Look at him. The son, the only son sent by the father so that you would have life. Now I want us to think through the implications of this. I can say God loves you and that's good. But I want us to think through the implications, and this is point three, the constant display of God's love. And what's interesting to me, most of all, is just how profound the implications of that reality are for us. In fact, it's interesting, the verb there stands as like a single event. The display is done. That's that's what John is saying, and that's the point that he's making. So how should that affect us? The first thing is in point A, in history. And what does that mean? Well, it's a historical reality, right? God did send his son, his unique son, into the world. And God did put him on a cross for his people. And God has put that display up for us to see that giant flashing neon sign in history that God loves his people. It's all there, right? The fact that God is love, it's there already. The incarnation and the death of Christ is complete. It's done. And he's been raised from the dead. When we are tempted to question God's love, we need to look at history. I think that's so fascinating. Look at history. You doubt that God loves you. What do you do? You look at the history. It's there. It's not a myth. It's real. His love is real. God has done this, and the mission is accomplished. It's finished. It's a historical fact that God loves. The second application, this is point B. It's in your salvation. In your salvation. Notice what part we play here. What part do we play in this verse? We play no part in this verse. 
Jesus' entrance into the world is so that, so that you would live is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on you. The incarnation of the unique Son of God is the only way that you can have eternal life. It's not by your actions. It's not by your church attendance. It's not by your giving. It's not by your sanctification. Those things flow out of what God has done for you in Christ. We are justified. You and I are justified. We have life through the action of God the Father sending His Son into the world to live and die for us alone. That's the only reason we have eternal life. And that's why God's love is so profoundly on display here. Think of this for a minute. If, if God were to say, I'll send my Son into the world, but only to those who worship me rightly. Or I'll send my Son into the world, but only for the righteous, not sinners. Or even, I'll send my son into the world as a potential savior to those who choose to believe this message. That's not love. God's love is on display in your salvation because it has nothing to do with you. It's him. He chose to send his son into the world. He chose to send his unique one into the world. He chose to give you life. It's him. Why do you have new spiritual life? Because God loved you and he sent his son. And in fact, look back at verse 9. I want to show you this. Look what he says. He says, By this the love of God was manifested where? In us. Where is that display happening? Where is that display happening? What John is saying is that God is displaying his love in your heart. He's showing you the glory of his love all the time in your heart. How? By the fact that he loves you unconditionally. It's so glorious. John is saying that your knowledge of God's love and his display of his love for you is tied directly to your salvation. Your justification, the fact that God declares you righteous in Christ, is the access point for your soul to know just how much God loves you. And it is the only access point where God displays that initially. Now think of this for a minute. I want you to think of your sin. All of us here know we've sinned, right? But I want you to think of a sin that you feel guilty over something that's heavy. Maybe it's something that no one knows about. Maybe it's something that some people know about. What do you feel when you think of your sins? If you're like me, I feel heavy. My soul feels heavy because I'm guilty. And I feel it and I know I'm guilty. And I can feel the weight of that. And then think of the cross. The death of Christ, God's one and only unique son, that he put him there and he took your guilt off of you and he put it on Christ and he crushed Jesus for that guilt. And not only did he crush him for your guilt, but he took his righteousness and he placed it on you and it's yours. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. 
So we see the love of God in history and we see it in our salvation. And the third one is in point C, in your life, in your life. This is the access point to the goodness of God in your life. If you're like me, one of the things that I can slip into often is self-pity. I'm a self-pitying machine. This is like a gift of mine. Give me any adversity, and it's very easy for me to turn it into being picked on. Right? Words like unfair come into my mind often. It's easy. It's easy for my mind to go that way. I start to think of my life as being unfair and it's hard and uncomfortable and I wish it would go away. I might not verbalize these things. I might not say them, but I'm full of this. It's so easy for my heart to do this. When things go poorly for me, and I I don't always say this, but I tend to blame God. Even subconsciously, I start to say things like, God, if you actually loved me, you would fix this problem. God, if you actually love me, why would you bring this into my life? God, if you loved me, you would solve this crisis. God, if you you actually loved me, you would bring peace to the relational conflict that I feel with this person. And then go on and on. This isn't just once or twice. This is very easy for me to fall into. But what does this passage tell me in my self-pity? tells me that God does indeed love me, in spite of what I'm facing. And the way I know that for sure is because he died for my sins. That's my confidence that he loves me. And Paul says this, look at Romans chapter 8 with me, Romans chapter 8. In some ways, if 1 John 4, 9 through 11 is the bedrock of sanctification, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, is the first stair step upward. Look what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son. What's that? That's 1 John 4, 4, 9, right? He didn't spare his son. He didn't. He sent him, his unique son, into the world. He sent him. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. That word for delivered over is to hand over to execution. If he delivered him over for us all, then he says what? How will he not also with him, with Christ, freely give us everything else? What's he saying? The most precious thing in the universe to God, the Father, is God the Son. If God the Father would send his Son into the world... It's the argument from the greater to the lesser, right? If he would do that, everything else is a zero in comparison to what he's done for you in Christ. Paul's argument is that the gift of God's Son is the proof of his love for you. If he would do that, he will freely give you everything else. He absolutely will. There's no question because he's done that. What does that mean for us? Martin Luther said, you cannot start at your circumstance and reason backwards to the love of God. You cannot. Good or bad, 
You cannot start at your circumstance and reason backwards to the fact that God loves you. Why? Because life is full of trial. So you start with a trial and you say, I see the pain of this. How could God possibly love me in this? What am I doing? I'm reasoning backwards to the love of God. That doesn't work. We have to start with the love of God and reason outward to the circumstance. Start with the truth that he loves you and reason outward to what's happening. Now think about this. What does that do? When we actually trust that God loves us in the trial, it changes the trial totally, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If God, who is sovereign over everything in the universe and who sent his son into the world to prove that he loves me has brought this into my life, it's not a suffering anymore. It might not be comfortable, but it's not suffering anymore in the same way. Why? Because I can say with Paul, I am sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing because I know God loves me. And if I know that God loves me, I can look at the trial and instead of saying, God, why have you brought this into my life? Take it away. I can say, God, why have you brought this into my life? Show me what you want to teach me. And because every trial is a gift of a loving God who displayed his love once and for all by sending his son, his only unique son, into the world so that I might have life, what does that tell me? It tells me that the greatest suffering I could possibly have has already been dealt with. Jesus suffered for me. He suffered my eternity in hell on my behalf. It's done. If that's true, then the suffering that he's brought into my life is for me as well. And he has good purposes in it. Everything changes, doesn't it? If you know that the sovereign God loves you in your trial, everything changes. It flips everything on its head. It's all done. But if I'm not believing that, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in my heart? I'm going to start grumbling, right? I'm going to start complaining. I'll argue. I'll start to scheme to get myself out of the discomfort. I'll try to manipulate the situation. I'll be full of self-pity and anger. Why? Because I don't trust that God loves me in that. So John is telling you, God has displayed his love for you. (laughs) Look at the billboard. Just look at the billboard. It's right there. God says, I love you. Show me, God. Show me that you love me in my pain. And he says, it's done. It's already done. Jesus came into the world. I sent him, my unique son, so that you would have life and not death. If I've done that, I'll do everything else for you. Trust me. Trust me. I'm caring for you. To believe the powerful fatherly love of God on our behalf and to trust him causes us to live for him and for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. Lord, we and we cannot We cannot understand what he's done for us. Lord, we can try, but we cannot understand it. In fact, Lord, we know that from now until eternity, you will be displaying that love through the glory of your Son. 
Lord, that heaven is a place where Christ is worshipped as the lamb who was slain to ransom his people. And that forever we will be unfolding your love for us and sending him to die for sinners like us. Lord, I know all of us, all of us, every person here hurts. We do. Life is hard. But Lord, we thank you that we do not need to doubt your love because you have displayed it. You have manifested it to us. Lord, we see, we see the glory of your love for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you that you would send your unique son to take our death, our eternal death, so that we might live through him. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting. Lord, I pray that they would see. Lord, that they would reason outward to their trial from your love. Lord, that they would have confidence that you love them. And that that truth would be a bedrock anchor in their soul. And that from that, they would reason outward to every pain and every circumstance and every discomfort. And they would begin to see your goodness. Lord, that you would move in their heart and teach them. Not only that you love them, but how you are loving them in those discomforts. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We can't express how much we thank you for Christ. Lord, we pray that he would be loved and worshipped, and that we would come to you and love you and worship you with all of our heart because of what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that it's not contingent on what we do, It's not contingent on our sanctification. It's not contingent on our external life. But it is finished in Christ. Lord, free us from doubting your love through the power of your word and the beauty of your son. Lord, we love you. We thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.